Welcome to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb, helping you find purpose and joy in your life and relationships. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Look in your Bibles, if you will, at a very familiar verse, Hebrews 11. As I've mentioned, on March 3rd, 91, the United Flight 585 crashed on en route from Denver to Colorado Springs. And 21 passengers and four crew were all killed, and Bill was on the plane, my only brother. And that's the first experience I've had up front with surprising death. I've had grandparents die, but my parents are both alive and healthy. They're elderly, 80 and 76. Rachel's parents are both alive and healthy at 87 or 88 and 84. All four grandparents alive. We're very blessed. I have two boys. Bill and Phoebe have two kids. They're all alive. Some struggles. But there's been nothing that's been, um, been, been, been crashing into me until that particular point. And I can recall being right here at the Springs Airport when I drove down. I was sitting at the Lord's Supper on a Sunday morning up in Denver when an elder came by and said, there's an emergency phone call for you. And it was Dad on the phone. Just got a call from a very distraught Phoebe who was at the Springs Airport to meet Bill. To, he was in Atlanta at a counseling conference. He was a psychologist and practiced with Brent. And um, she said that the plane had crashed and she was distraught, of course, and and Dad said, you need to get down there. So I was supposed to leave for Dallas to do a seminar with Dan, and that, those plans got changed. And I drove down, and I remember at the airport, um, when I got the news, as I walked into the airport, not knowing where to go, not knowing where Phoebe was, wanting to be with her, and not knowing if there had been survivors, not knowing how serious the situation was, I just didn't know. But I talked to a, a guard, a policeman, some kind of an airport of a security official, and I said, um, what's the story? And he said, there are no survivors. And that was the time when I realized Bill was dead. And my first sentence was, Bill's dead. And Rachel said, do you want me to drive? We had to drive somewhere else. I said, no, I can drive, I can drive. And um, you, all, you all have experienced something similar. You've all, many of you have lost people that you love, of course, and my trauma is no worse than yours. And, um, but that trauma for me did something that began me on a new level of journey, and I want to explain that to you this morning, this afternoon. I've told this before to several audiences. It doesn't feel canned to me at all as I say it again, so I trust it won't sound that way to you. It feels very alive in my soul as I say it. Um, for the next two weeks after Bill's death, I was, of course, very involved in the arrangements and memorial service we had here in the Springs as well one one back in Columbia where Bill lived for a number of years. And, uh, of course, I cried, and we cried together, and we prayed, and we hurt, and we still do. But two weeks after Bill died... It died on March 3rd. On March 17th, I, I can recall it vividly. I said to my wife on a Sunday afternoon, I said, there are tears inside of me that I have not yet cried. Does that make sense to any of you? And I said to her, I have no idea what they're about. I cried over Bill's death and still do on occasion. Time doesn't ease the pain, but something else surrounds it. That's how it works for me. But the tears inside were tears that were coming from a source, of, a source within my soul with which I was unfamiliar. Do understand that, that the human soul is a rather rich thing. That's not the right word. 
There's something very rich, very deep, very alive about what it means to be a human being, one who bears the image of God, one who has a soul. There are depths to my soul that I don't believe I've begun to explore yet. There are depths to my deceitful heart that, that, that are still yet to be uncovered. And that day I was aware that something was stirring within me and I didn't know what it was. Now, what do you do when you get like that? Don't you all have times when something inside seems to start, you know, going around? If, if it's a physical thing, it's like the flu starting, you're going to throw up, that kind of a thing. And you kind of want to throw up because you feel better after you do. Well, I kind of wanted to cry. I knew there was something. I didn't know what it was. John White has an excellent book called Changing on the Inside, which I've never thought was a terribly original title. Um, but the well-known psychiatrist from Canada has this excellent book called Changing on the Inside in which he spends a lot of time defining repentance and says something I deeply believe that all meaningful change requires the operation of repentance. And what I mean by that primarily is that affirmation never changes people deeply. More is required than affirmation. Affirmation is good. I like affirmation. But affirmation isn't the core of change. Repentance is the core of change. Repentance is a far deeper construct than I think I've understood, and I'm sure it's far deeper than I yet understand. But he suggested that the process of repentance begins with some internal churning, and he drew the analogy between repentance and an earthquake. And before the earthquake actually hits and everybody feels the tremors and the horrors take place in San Francisco, before the actual earthquake hits, there is a, a movement of forces beneath the surface that sometimes you feel a little bit of now and then, and then it explodes into the major disaster. He says repentance is like that. And the earthquake, the major disaster, the major catastrophe in the natural sense, is what he's likening to the actual, the actual explosion of repentance. That begins with a whole lot of deep churning up. Well, I was feeling that churning, provoked by Bill's death. I knew the tears were coming from a deeper source than Bill's death, but I wasn't sure where they were coming from. So I got up that night. I couldn't sleep. And um, I went to my study and took my Bible. And I remember sitting there thinking, now what do you do? I mean, do you read Psalm 23? Do you, I mean, what do you do? Do you start praying? Dear Lord, I ask you to bless me and to help me as I, you know. What do you do? And I didn't know what to do. So all I do when I don't know what to do is to try to become aware of whatever reality is impinging itself on me at that moment. That's all I do. Try to become aware of whatever, whatever seems real. And what seemed most real to me at that moment was my rage at the Bible. I felt furious at the scriptures. And I took it off my lap and I just closed it and I just put it down and just, I was angry. I, was, I remember thinking, where did that come from? I, I don't hate the Bible. I think it's the inherent word of God. I teach the Bible a lot. I love teaching the Bible. I read it a lot. There's no other source of truth but the Bible. I believe all that. And I'm mad at it? I don't understand that. All I understood at that time was part of the answer. It wasn't the complete answer, but part of the answer was that I was asking questions that I wasn't being given answers to. There was something inside of me that wanted to be soothed and I, and I couldn't think of a passage that would do what needed to be done at that time. And it made me mad. Because it seems to me that when I'm at some certain level of pain that if anybody cared and if they knew about it, they'd do something about it. And I had no confidence God would do anything about it. I just got mad. I couldn't think of the text that would do for me what my soul needed to have done. I was furious.
as I put the Bible aside and just banged it down on the couch next to me at midnight or one in the morning, the tears began to come, and they were angry tears. And I think what I became aware of in a new dimension was something that I someone told me, Dan mentioned this the other night. Um, I wasn't mad at the Bible, I was mad at God. There was a hatred in me toward my Savior, toward the one who I believe has loved me and given himself for me and has forgiven my sins, going to take me to heaven. I believe all that. I really, really do. And there was just a, a rage and an anger, a fury, livid, red-hot rage at, at God. And I didn't understand it, but I knew it was there. I didn't have a clue what to do with it. And um, began entering that as best I could, which I think is what you ought to do. Begin entering that as best I could. Pour out your heart before the Lord. I think it means more than just come to Him with polite petitions. And and in my rage, I think I was saying, God, I really, I really don't like you. Someone asked me, I did, I've done a lot of Bible teaching in earlier days, and somebody said, if listening to me preach a lot at a local church and teach Sunday school class, that you always spend most time in the Old Testament, very little in the Gospels. I've heard you preach from Kings, from Hosea, from the Minor Prophets, the Major Prophets, from the Pentateuch. I've heard you preach from some of the Epistles, but I never heard you preach from the Gospels. That was about eight years ago, and I thought about that, and I thought, I know why I don't want to preach in the Gospels. I don't really like Jesus. I don't like the way he comes across. That was just kind of a little thought that I had years ago. I thought, that's that's not true. I love Jesus. He's my Savior. And then a year and a half ago, something started spilling out. I don't know what it was. But I was mad. And um, it's interesting. When Dad got the news that Bill was killed, first thing he did, he went in the backyard and screamed at God for ten minutes. And then the way he puts it in one of the chapters in his book, and then when God didn't repent, he decided to trust him. But that didn't come as easily for me, and I just was really upset and, and um, just became very aware of, of, a, of several things with new force, things that you're all aware of, but they hit me that night with new force, things like the unpredictability of life. Um, I was to be in Dallas, do a seminar, and then a couple of weeks be with Bill for a particular golf outing. And now life wasn't that way. Bill's not here. I drive to Colorado Springs and I drive down. This is where Phoebe lives. And I have golf with Bill at the Air Force Academy. I feel it every time I drive by the Air Force Academy. I won't golf with Bill there ever again. Life's unpredictable. I don't like the way it's unpredictable. And um, I struggled with that. And I began to realize that um, two things that struck me recently from Oswald Chambers' writings are very, very true. Oswald Chambers says two things that really struck me recently. One, he said that you make no progress in the Christian life until you realize that life is not orderly, it's tragic. The second thing he said was that the root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. And those thoughts began making sense to me. And I began, began becoming aware that, that I, I don't know what to do to make life work the way I think it should. We have two boys. The older one was kicked out of a Christian college for some severe serious offenses. Dan and I were at a seminar, and Rachel called when she got the news, told Dan, who broke the news to me, the evening before I was to get the next morning give a lecture on, parent, on how to be a good parent. I got up and gave the lecture on how to be a good parent, and it was a, one of the harder lectures I've given in my life. And um, 
And that began a process of coming to realize that there's there's no formulas. There's nothing that I can do. Of course, what you do in that situation is always look back and say, where did I fail? Where did I go wrong? What did I do wrong here if I had done this? But then I started looking at people's lives and I realized a whole lot of kids who really seem to be committed to the Lord since the day they were two come out of rotten homes. And a lot of kids that, that are awful come out of fantastic homes. And you get confused. Some of you know about a pastor's son who took his life last Christmas. In this area, I was speaking in Nashville a while ago, and the brother of that boy came up to me. The boy was 24 years old. And he said, I can't tell you how much I appreciated what you said, that when you said that the fact that a young man commits suicide does not ultimately mean that clearly the parents have failed. Because as soon as I heard about that suicide, I was called on Christmas Day. I didn't know the pastor, but I know a mutual contact. And as soon as I heard about that a young, young man my son's age took his life on Christmas Day, my first thought was, my automatic reflexive thought was, I wonder what the parents did wrong. Why does my mind go like that? Because I want to know what to do right. <laughs> if when your wife leaves you, if I can find out how you fouled up, then I won't do it, so my, my life won't, won't leave me. What I want to do is arrange my world, do you see? I want to find some way to make my world work. And that night, what became clear to me is, there's no way to do that. I can be the best parent in the world, and my kid might take his life. I can be the best husband in the world, as good as I can be, which obviously is seriously flawed, and my wife really might not like me. A man who mentored me very significantly, one of the godliest men I know, had a wife who hated him for 30 years till the day he died. Literally. And their 30 years of marriage, they had sex probably 10 times. I sat in his office many times. He was my mentor in many ways. And I sat in his office and he would just cry with me and just weep and say that his, way, his, his description of it, I feel like it's a brick right in my stomach all the time. Just weighing me down, and it's and it's and it's horrible. And and I remember working with him, and and just trying hard, trying so hard to figure out what he was doing wrong, so his wife, he he could change, and his wife would then respond. I think it's right to think hard about what you ought to do before the Lord to be a good father, and to be a good husband, and to be a good pastor, and to be a good whatever. But you can be as sincere and committed and wise as you can be, and and bad things happen. Well, that night, all that hit me. And I think the tears that were coming from deep parts within me were coming from the realization that life is absolutely disorderly, at least as far as I can tell from my perspective. Now, I know with the sovereign God, it's a different picture, but from my perspective, I don't see the plan. Job suffered without ever having a clue at what was happening between God and Satan. How silly for his, for his counselors to try to explain things to him when they didn't have a clue either. What they should have said was, huh? That's good counsel. You don't make a good living at it, but it's good counsel. <laughs> Hear what I mean when I say you've got to have a person to trust, not a plan to follow? Pastors, how many of you for the past years in your pulpit have been giving a plan to follow and leading your people into making their lives work and getting in the way of their relationship with Christ? Well, that night I was in a bad way aware that I can't make life work, I can do this and do this and do this and be the best husband possible and I still might have a wife like my friend had who hated him for 30 years before he died. I could be the best parent in the world as best as I know and try very, very hard and I have no guarantees as to how my kid's going to turn out. It's all of grace. 
And grace is unpredictable from our perspective. And that night, when I came to feeling a level of desolation and despair that was a new dimension for me, I prayed a prayer, and my prayer was this. It was the first time I prayed it quite this way, but I can recall the words. And I shrieked them, I sobbed them, I shouted them. I said, Lord, I know you're all I have, but I don't know you well enough for you to be all I need. Show me, show me yourself. What does it mean to know God? What does it mean to find God? So that when your son takes his life, you can still preach. So that when your wife tells you she's a lesbian, and that explains your bad sex life for the last 20 years, and now she leaves you for her girlfriend, that you can still go on. One of our former students, with him three weeks ago, his wife just took off about a year ago, and his, his life is shattered. What does it mean to know God in the middle of this kind of world? You see, most of us live in fear, don't we? I know, I know how I feel when I counsel with people. I sometimes hear people tell me problems, and my internal response is, I don't think I could handle that that happened to me. And when that's my internal response, I'm impotent to counsel that person effectively. But my internal response is, as long as that doesn't happen to me, then I think I can go on and be a solid Christian. My wife hasn't left me. She shows no signs of leaving me. I think we're deeply in love. And, and both of my boys are really doing quite well now. My older boy who had the difficulties, the Lord gave me my most supernatural moment of my life when I met with him after that incident, flew back home. And, um, and I was, for some reason I was very aware that my meeting with my son was going to be a crucial moment. And I remember just giving up on every plan and saying, Lord, the only thing I know to do is I've got to somehow be like you. What are you like toward my kid right now? And for the first time in my life, I didn't have a drop of anger in me. And I'm an angry man. I didn't have any of that bad anger. And I, I, just, I just loved my kid. He got saved on the basis of that encounter. So now is that the formula? <laughs> See how your minds work? Mine does too. Everybody who has kids doing well, tell me how you did it. Write me down. Ten steps. Lord, I know you're all that I have. I don't have a plan. I don't have a program. I don't have predictability. I don't have reliability. I know you're all that I have, but I don't know you well enough for you to be all that I need. Will you show yourself to me? Because right now we're not getting along because frankly, I don't like you. There's something inside of me that feels a fist clenched toward you for the kind of things you allow in this world. I don't say you're doing a good job and I'm mad about it, but I'm stuck with you. I don't know where else to go. I somehow believe you have the words of life, but I hate you, and I can't put it all together. Will you do something with this mess? Anybody relate to that at all, or is that just a new language? Isn't that the language of your heart sometimes? It is mine. Well, I'm not a mystic. But the older I get, the more mystical I'm getting. Because probably for the first time in my life, a year and a half ago, I, I, I hate this phrase because I hear it so glibly, but let me say it in a way that I think is meaningful. I think God gave me a verse. You know, when you're teenagers, God gave me a verse, I shouldn't date you anymore, you know, it's not God's will. Uh, God gave me a verse to take this better paying job, God gave me a verse, I should, you know. Um, that's just used so badly, I think. But, but I, I remember just feeling impressed, forgive the mysticism, to turn to Hebrews 11 and verse 6. And that verse became a, a very central verse in organizing my thinking over the past year and a half in my journey. And I want to, I want to tell you what I've learned about that verse. Verse 6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God. Anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. 
Well, that night I knew that verse was important. I didn't know why. It didn't mean anything to me, but I knew that was a verse I was going to spend some time thinking about. There's probably been no verse that I've pondered longer than that verse in the entire scripture, and that's been the six months after that event that night. On the basis of my pondering, I've come to I've come to an understanding that's very tentative, so I don't present it to you in a proclamation form, but I present it to you in a dialogue sharing kind of a form. I think there's three things that I've been doing that that have occurred to me. If I can organize my confusion into three things. There are three things that I've been doing that have been getting in the way of my knowing God. Let me tell you what they are and explain them to you, based on that verse. First thing, and these phrases will not make any sense until I explain them, so let me just give you some cryptic sounding phrases. First thing is this. I build my city outside the garden. I spent a lot of energy building my city, and I want to tell you what I mean by that. Outside the garden. The second thing I do is I reduce mystery to principles that I can manage. I hate mystery. It leaves me vulnerable. Therefore, who must I hate? Who's the most mysterious being all of us have in a relationship with? Well, our wives might be up there on the list. Uh, <laughs> But it's God. My ways are above yours. And he's, he's a mystery to me. I, I can't seem to harness him. I can't corral him. I can't get him understood. I can't get him figured out. And I've got a mind that likes to figure things out. As a counselor, I've really shifted on this. But up until maybe two or three years ago, I was a very analytic type. I don't mean that in some technical sense. But I was a very uh, working very hard to figure things out and getting charts and putting it all together and making sense out of it. And, um, and putting it together in some pretty clever ways and being able to use my verbal skills to make it all work according to my charts. And now my thought is, geez, I don't know. I mean, you want to counsel with me? Sure, we'll stumble through together in darkness and confusion. And There's a couple of things that are anchor points, and maybe it'll shed some light, and maybe someday we'll both become transcendent men. But it's very different. I used to be thought of as a very clever counselor. My nickname when I used to do public counseling, I used to do a lot of public counseling, still do a little bit of it. But when I would counsel folks in public, my nickname was Zorro. You know, I was quick. Nobody's called me Zorro for years. Stumble bum confused, slow, tedious. Those are more the words that fit. You know what I think, though? More powerful. When I was Zorro, I impressed a lot of people. It didn't help many. Now I'm, not imp- I'm impressing far fewer, which hurts. But I'm helping a few more. I like that. Second thing I tend to do is I like to reduce mystery to principles. Counseling principles, sanctification principles that I can manage. That's my second mistake that gets in the way of finding God. The third mistake that I have made, still make, this is not a past problem, I avoid contact with the tender parts of my soul by not fully telling my story. I avoid contact with the tender parts of my soul by not fully telling my story. This is a small enough group to do this with. Let me ask a question. How many of you men have a secret? You've never told another living soul something that you're too ashamed of to say. Is this wrong for me to do this? Would you raise your hand if you have a secret? 
Look around the room. Keep your hands up. I don't go ask them what's your secret. Just look at that. Up until a year ago, my hand would have gone up. There's one one man who I've told something to nobody else knows. I talked to that man about a month ago and asked him, how do you feel about me? And he told me he's gained respect for me. I fell apart and cried again. Do we avoid the tender parts of our souls by not fully telling our stories? Is that going to get in the way of finding God? Because guys, you know, I know, it's all we got. That's so hard to believe because if you're here at this pastor's conference, chances are that you're, by some definition, a reasonably successful pastor, whatever that means. You know, maybe we have no Chuck Swindoll sitting in our midst or whatever, but but we've all got something going for us. We all can handle the word to some degree. We can handle our pulpits to some degree. And, and many people in our church would say that they're glad to have us as their pastor and they really appreciate our ministry. And, and I think that's wonderful. And I praise the Lord for that. I don't think the opposite is better than that. I'd prefer that, you know. But, but having said that, isn't it true that, that, there's, that we're really lonely men? There's parts of our story that we never tell. And, and we seem to have the resources to pull life off to at least some degree. And isn't it true that, like me, that most of us, most of you, like me, are, are, are somehow doing this and saying, I, I, think, I think things are not too bad. I think I'm doing all right. All right, my, my church hasn't split, at least only two in the last year, so things are not that bad. The elders aren't ready to kill me. There's two that are bad, but I think we're getting rid of them soon. Um, my sermons are generally okay. I'm pretty dry some of the time, but once in a while I feel some life within me, and that's, that beats the average. And my wife and I, we, we don't talk much, but, but we, we, do, we don't hate, and we really don't fight, and I haven't hit her at all. And I think we're doing all right. No, I don't make her soul glow, but that's just for the novels and the fairy tales anyhow. When's the last time you made your wife glow? When's the last time, because of your existence, your wife just kind of went, Ooh, you know, versus, yeah. <laughs> Is your wife terrified of you? Most of your wives are. But you're doing all right. I mean, things are okay. And your kids come to church, and they're not in too much trouble. So I think I'm all right. So therefore, there's no need, there's no need to face the deep things in my soul that I'm really building a city outside the garden, that I'm really reducing mystery to principles that I can manage, that I will not tell my story because I'm terrified of certain tender parts of my soul. What do I mean by all that? Well, let me let me take the next few minutes, and Wes told me to go to about five. I'm trying to last that long, but I'll go to close to that and then finish it up tonight. Let me tell you how this verse led me into that thinking. A little Bible study time. Hebrews 11, of course, is a passage you've preached from many times, no doubt, in the Hall of Fame and all that. Have you noticed that in Hebrews 11, the narrator talks about a lot of different people and says, by faith so-and-so, by faith so-and-so, by faith so-and-so. And then you've gotten to the punchline at the end and they all died not having received the promise and the world was not worthy of them and, and we preach about, is the world worthy of us? Well, if it is, we're in trouble and we need to die not having received the promises so we can be God's kind of people and all that. But have you noticed as you've gone through the narration that there are three times a narrator interrupts the narration to enunciate a principle? 
first time he enunciated a principle, gets away from the narration, is verse 6. The verse that God gave me, if I can use an old cliche. Second time begins in verse 13 and goes through 16. He begins to not talk about another person, but he begins to articulate a principle. And the last time is the last part of the chapter, all the way back at verse um, 38 and to the end, that some commentary is made on the narration. He leaves the narration and makes a comment. Well, it occurred to me as I noticed that, pondering this verse and trying to see what God might have for me in this text, it occurred to me that that maybe the writer's mind, whoever the writer was, we all have our theories, that maybe the writer's mind, under the leadership of the Spirit, was prompted to enunciate the principle because of the person he had just mentioned. That seemed like a, a reasonable assumption to at least start playing with. If I start telling a story about this friend, this friend, this friend, and then I say, and you know, people, people like that really tend to get in a lot of trouble. Chances are, I was thinking about the person I just mentioned. And when the writer says, without faith it's impossible to please God, and anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who diligently seek him, maybe he's thinking about the person he just mentioned, so I look back to see who he just mentioned. That's Enoch. So my thought was, well, how's that help? Enoch's an illustration of what it means to come to God. Because I was praying that night. I was pleading, God, I want to know how to come to you. I want to know how to become a transcendent man. I don't want to become just a together person and people see my life and say it's fairly together. And from outward appearances, my life is very together. I've got a nice job, a nice wife, nice kids, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So my life is very together. And am I a recovering man? Yeah, I'm vulnerable. People tell me, boy, you're very vulnerable. You tell us about your struggles and all that. And my thought is, yeah, I'm very vulnerable. And where does it get me? It just gets me more miserable. Um, but I'm vulnerable and I'm together. But big deal, I want to be transcendent. And to be transcendent, I must be seized by a reality larger than me. I want to know God in a way that I don't know Him. And I see a couple of older people who know God in a way that makes my tongue hang out. And I say, God, how do I get there? Are you confident that you're walking a path today that 20 years from now you'll know Him far better than you do today? Or 20 years from now you'll be more burnt out than you are today? Or you'll be more alive because of Christ? I mean, I want to be more alive because of Christ, whatever that means. But that's what I really, really want. I was preaching in Maryland last summer in the Sandy Cove Bible Conference, and after I finished my last message, an old man approached me. He was 84 years old, he told me. He was a short man. And he came up, and he put his hands on me, and I felt like a big guy because he was short and leaning up to put his hands on my shoulders. And he said, young man, I enjoyed that. I, want, I must speak to you. And when somebody that age with that kind of authority wants to speak, I, you listen. And I had preached that night about the fact that um, life doesn't work. But God can be trusted, even though we spend half our lives hating Him. And he said, I lost my wife four years ago after, after 50-some years of marriage. I have never known pain like I've known these last four years. Sitting by myself at the breakfast table without my wife is hell. And then he said... And I've begged God to relieve my pain, and he has not done so. But he's shown me himself in ways I've never seen, and I can't wait to be with him. And I thought, am I on the path to being like that? That sounded good to me. What's the path to being like that? Well, this verse struck me as maybe relevant to that. Him that cometh to God must believe that he exists. Well, I'm not an atheist. Does it mean more than that? And that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. What rewards do I really believe God's going to give me? 
A brother who doesn't die in a plane crash? A kid who never gets in trouble in college? What rewards is he going to give me? I've been a good father. This is what I get. What rewards is he going to give me? God, I'm not sure about this verse. Well, study Enoch. Okay. How do you study Enoch? Not a whole lot of material. All right? There's a book by his name, but it's not canonical in most of our minds. So what do you do with Enoch? Well, you go back and you look at something. Look at a couple things with me. I want you to see where I'm heading with this. Genesis 5. Favorite favorite passage for preachers in genealogies. Verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had his son's own likeness, his own image, named him Seth. After Seth was born, verse 4, Adam, what's the next word? Lived. 800 years. Verse 7, after Seth became the father of Enosh, Seth lived. Same word. Verse 10, after Enosh became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived. Verse 13, after Kenan became the father of Mahalalel, and by the way, whenever you're reading the Bible publicly, you have no idea how to pronounce a word, just say it confidently and loud. People know the difference. <laughs> after Kenan became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived. Verse 16, after Mahalalel became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived. Verse 19, after Jared became the father of Enoch, Jared lived. Verse 22, after Enoch became the father of Methuselah, Enoch why is it change? Walked with God. I thought, well, that's interesting. Everybody else lived and Enoch walked with God. And I thought, what am I doing? What's the difference? Well, what's it mean to walk with God? Well, I've preached on that and you have too. But now I didn't want to preach on it. I wanted to understand it. And boy, there's a difference. I mean, now it mattered. So what does it mean to walk with God? And I thought, well, i got to think about this. Enoch walked with God. My mind went to the very obvious thought in Amos, how can two walk together unless they're agreed? And I thought, well, God has an agenda. And if I'm going to walk with him, I must cooperate with his agenda. I thought about all my agendas. I got a ton of agendas. And I thought, walking with God actually means giving up all of my agendas. Because it's clear two cannot walk together unless they're agreed. If, if I have an agenda to go to the building over there, and you have an agenda to go to that building or out this door over here, we can't walk together unless we agree, no, we'll both go this way. Well, who's going to change? God never does. He never accommodates himself to my agenda. So I began to think about my agendas. What are my real agendas? Now listen, you can't understand the issue of agendas until you talk about relationships in the moment. The issue of agenda is what are you trying to achieve at any given moment in your relationship? About six months ago, Rachel, who does a lot of speaking at women's conferences, was away at a conference, and she um, she called from where she was, an hour from home, after the conference, and she called Collect, long distance, and began telling me about this wonderful weekend retreat that she had been involved with, she had been leading it, and how God had blessed and how wonderful things were happening, and she was really excited. And she wanted to tell me all about it on the phone that was Collect. And my thought was, if you just drive home, you'd be here in an hour, and we could talk face-to-face, and it wouldn't cost anything. 
So I said to her, well, honey, you sound excited. This is great. Why don't you drive on home and we'll talk about it when you get here? What's my agenda? Was it God's? Well, whatever it was, it didn't do a lot for her um, because her passion immediately just died. Oh, okay. See you in a bit. So I hang up the phone. Now, what's my agenda? What's my energy? Why, why are women like that? So an hour goes by and I hear the garage door go up. I don't normally go out to the garage and my wife drives in because she had been gone for two days and I don't run out to greet her. You know, I'm, She comes in, everything's fine. This day I went out to greet her. I wonder why. What's my agenda? I don't like tension between us because I don't like tension between us. So I want to see if maybe we can get over this tension and have a decent evening. Is that living or walking with God? You must get down to the moment of every day. Don't look at the big stuff. Look at the little stuff. And she got out of the car and I walked out. Hi, honey. How you doing? Gave her a hug. And you know what it's like. You hug your wife and she doesn't quite hug back and you know something's wrong. What do you do at that exact moment? Yeah, uh-oh. Same thing I do. What you do is you wimp out. Because you know if you get into it, you're going to be attacked because you know somehow, I mean, somewhere you're wrong. I mean, you always are. And, and somehow you're wrong and so you basically... Don't pursue it. You don't go to her and say, look, it's really clear you're upset. And I, and I don't understand it real well. I feel badly somewhere. I really hurt you bad. And I'd like to understand what that is. And if you have the courage to tell me, I'd love to listen. It's not what I did. I just grabbed her bags and said, hey, glad you're home. How'd the weekend go? Was it good? It was fine. Great, great, great. <laughs> we walked in and I put on the football game and... It took till about 10 o'clock that night till I had the courage to go to her and say, I really hurt you. I don't understand. Something's wrong. Her next sentence was, I feel over the past several months that you've been so involved in your ministry and things that you're doing that you have no energy to pay attention to me at all. Now, what's your energy at that point? Do you know how hard it's been? Do you know how much it would mean to me if there'd be a little more support coming from my helpmate who was made for Adam, not the reverse? Do you have a little clue about some biblical teaching here, dear lady? They don't say all that, but that's kind of what you say. And I thought, what is really my agenda? What does it mean to walk with God? With that in my mind, I went to another passage in the book of Jude. Turn to that. The other place where Enoch is mentioned. And Jude, in his epistle in verse 4, says, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They're godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. What I presume he's talking about is people who make it their priority to relieve wounds today and as, at any expense. I hurt, I don't want to hurt, I'll do whatever it takes not to hurt. If I can do it morally, that's fine. If I can't do it morally, I'll do it some way. I will assume that God's grace gives me permission to do whatever's required to see to it that I get a better self-image. Nothing matters more. Enoch talked about these men in verse 14. Enoch, seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. And here's the only recorded sermon of Enoch in the Bible. Listen to his attitude. See, the Lord is coming, with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone, to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way, and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's Enoch's sermon. Well, what's this Enoch guy like? 
He walks with God. Everybody else lived. Apparently, his agenda was not to preserve himself from from his wife's attack. His agenda was not to save money at the expense of his wife's soul. His, his, His agenda was somehow to be used of God to further God's purposes when your wife comes in the garage and doesn't give you a hug back. And my thought is, I'm a long way from that. I'm not walking with God very well, apparently. And you don't get better at it, you get broken by it. And then then the thought occurred to me, well, Enoch is one who looks at people who are hurting bad, and he says, you have a worse problem than you're hurt, and it's called your sin. Holiness really is the issue. You have a worse problem than, 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 than you're hurt. So the husband and wife come in for counseling. Rachel and I come to you for counseling, Pastor. We talk about that evening in the, uh, in the garage where I didn't get hugged very well back and I avoided her and then she told me later when I asked her about some difficult things in our marriage. And if you were to say to me, would you have the discernment to say to me, why did you walk to the garage when the car door opened? When the garage door opened? Do you always do that? Well, no. You did it that day though? Well, yeah. Why? What's your motivation? Oh, you were Freudian, all this motivational stuff? Is that what you are? No, no, I'm biblical because Proverbs 20 and verse 5 says, The purposes of a man's heart are like deep waters, but the man of understanding draws them out. So it's right to understand your motivation. It's right to think about these things. And I say to you, but don't you understand that I work hard and I don't get the support and the tenderness I always want from my wife. And then you look at me and say, you have a worse problem than how pressured and busy and burnt out you feel. You have a worse problem than a wife who isn't always there for you the way you want her to be. Well, what's my worst problem? And the answer is, your agenda isn't God's at that moment. Well, big deal. Who can be perfect for crying out loud? Look, I'm hurting. And Enoch says, no, no, no. Holiness is the issue. We're told that Enoch is seventh from Adam in verse 14. Did you ever notice that? Why is that there, do you suppose? Well, I think it's there to identify which Enoch he's talking about. There's other Enoch's in the Bible. I think it's there for more than that. Look back at this, be last point before we go to dinner. Look back at Genesis. Genesis 4. The thought occurred to me that if Enoch is seventh from Adam, he's seventh from Adam in the line of Seth. There's another, another line. The Bible always divides people in two categories, sheep and goats, Cain and Seth. And I thought, well, seventh from Adam from the line of Cain, could they illustrate the opposite of Enoch, who's seventh from Adam from the line of Seth? Could I learn some lessons from whoever is seventh from Adam from the ungodly line of Cain? Well, who's seventh from Adam from Cain? Answer, Lamech. Genesis 4. What characterized Lamech? Look at verse 19. He married two women. The first first polygamist, why? Well, polygamy back in that day meant power. More wives, more kids, more power. What's its agenda? Personal power. I'm going to make my life work. I've got a seminary degree. I'll make my life work. I'll preach good sermons. I'll make my life work. I'll get power over people. I'll make my life work. He said to his wives in verse 23, Listen to me, wives. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain's avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times, no one's going to interfere with my agenda. The last point I'll make before we break for dinner is this. Lamech, in that passage, is expressing the energy of his great-great-great-great-grandfather Cain. What's the energy of Cain? Last point I want you to notice. Look at verse 12. 
Same chapter. Last phrase. God's punishment of Cain. You all know the text. The last phrase. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain didn't repent. He complained. Verse 17. What did he then do when God said, you will wander? The first thing he did, after laying with his wife, getting a child, first thing he did was he built a city. That's in the text. Cain lay with his wife. She became pregnant, gave birth to Enoch, a different Enoch. Cain was then building a city. God said, wander. Cain said, no way. I'm going to build me a city. I'm going to see to it my life works. Nothing matters more than my life working. Listen, God, you kicked mom and dad out of the garden, and I'm stuck out here with all these weeds. You got that guy with a flaming sword I can't get back in. But I'll be doggone if I'm going to wander around. I'm going to get me a suburb for my kids to play in the park. I'm going to arrange me a city. The energy of Cain, as shown through Lamech, is the exact opposite of the energy that Enoch exemplified. The major mistake I think I've been making that I'm becoming aware of more and more is that I build a city outside the garden. That's the first mistake. And what I want you to leave you with to think about before we get back together again tonight is how do people build their cities? What does that mean? That's a metaphor, obviously. What does it mean for me? I'll give you one clue about me and then we'll break. You know how I build my city? Same way you build yours in principle. The details are different. I find... Whatever I'm good at that can seem to move me away from the wound I feel in my soul. I find whatever I'm good at that can soothe what I fear the most. And what I'm best at, and Wes said it, and I hope it doesn't sound boastful, God has chosen to give me an ability to think in certain categories. I'm real dumb in a lot of areas, and I'm fairly bright in some other areas. And I, and I think rather well in certain areas. And you know what I realize is my city building strategy? It's real simple. I must have something to say. When my kids are in trouble, when my wife and I are hurting, when I have an audience of pastors, I must have something to say. Because I've learned that I can say things that people respond to. I've got a history of it. I found a way to build my city. And with that kind of a mentality, you know what happens as years go on? You get madder and scareder and more and more pressured. I just finished a new book about three weeks ago. I'll be out next summer. I've written about eight or nine books. Every book that I write now is getting harder to write. I told my editor when I finished this last one, I feel, and this is a metaphor I can't understand, but it makes sense to me, I feel like a 60-year-old woman giving birth to triplets. Whatever that feels like. Because I must have something to say. Did I say anything people want to read this time? Am I up to par? People liked Inside Out. Would they like this one? Inside Out sold this many. Men and women sold this many. Huh, am I losing it? Will my next one be here? Or here? Or here? Is my city crumbling? I don't care much about you. Is my city crumbling? I don't care what you're doing in the world. Is my city crumbling? I must build my city. And I will avenge myself. You give me a bad review in my book? Huh. We won't get along too well. I build my city outside the garden. I want to explain that a little more when we come back and then look at the last two points. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.